0: But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. Uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being... And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
1: Welcome to Yer Na Pessaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us this week is Dr. Andre Obler, who is the CEO and founder of the Online Hate Prevention Institute. Thanks for joining us, Andre. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, what is the Online Hate Prevention Institute?
2: The Online Hate Prevention Institute recently turned 10 years old. It came out of a project that started two years before that and is is really a way of tackling all forms of online hate and discrimination online, as well as doing some work that goes into sort of the the counterterrorism space. So we we take a, a sort of technical approach. We try and improve the way the platforms work. We try and address shortcomings, both at the platform end, at the government end, within the community. And we do that for every type of hate that comes up, whether it's against a minority community, whether it's against an individual, whether it's against a segment of society that may not under sort of legal basis be protected. So we've done work looking at attacks on police, on firefighters, on politicians. When they're targeted as a group, When they're targeted individually, we can step in and and do something. This
1: group started uh, 10 years ago. The project began 12 years ago. What what
2: was it that uh, was the impetus for starting this project? If we go back a little bit further, in 2008, I presented a a paper at the Global Forum for Combating Antisemitism in Jerusalem. And that paper was the first bit of research looking at antisemitism in social media. And just to reflect on that, at the time this paper was produced, Facebook was struggling to catch up to MySpace. That's how long ago we're we're talking. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was um, raising a concern that what we were starting to see online was a, uh, a shift from hate speech in the real world becoming hate speech in these social media platforms. And it was becoming normalized. It was changing patterns of behavior. And the concern was that what we were seeing become normalized online could then move offline and we could see it starting to affect real world society. And and some years later, that's exactly what we saw happen. I was approached when I presented that paper. There was a front page newspaper article in the US as well. The ADL was put under pressure. What are you doing about this problem? And their response is, well, we can't really play whack-a-mole with social media. They approached me, asked me to run a department in New York. We spent a year sort of planning it. The global financial crisis happened. That project didn't go ahead. And I ended up coming back to Australia. And the the work that was set up in Australia was really a way of taking some of those plans to tackle the problem I'd identified and the work that initially the ADL was going to take forward, um, to take that forward in Australia. So that led to two years' worth of work on online antisemitism semitism after which we, we had this epiphany and realised that really the nature of the hate is different, the nature of the language used is different, but the problem is the same across a, a large number of different communities. So we, we then set up the Online Hate Prevention Institute as a an independent charity, not connected specifically with any community, whose work was to deal with this problem as it affects everybody. Andre, can you describe
3: how the language of hate has changed or modulated over the years I'm guessing maybe there's some sense in which it's a, a less direct expression that, that those who want to make hateful speech have employed various techniques to in order to allow them to speak but to bypass filters is,
2: is that what' what is what's going on it, it really depends what platform you're looking at. So on Facebook, which has some very advanced AI techniques running in the background, where when various forms of hate speech are posted, they're automatically removed. Obviously, there's things that fall through the gaps. January 27th, Holocaust Memorial Day, just this year, we worked with Facebook to remove, uh, I think it was 20-odd items of Holocaust denial that had slipped through the cracks so clearly it's not perfect, but there is a lot of common expressions of hate that are automatically now removed before anybody sees them. In that platform, in that context, people try and find ways around the systems. They try and find ways to still promote their hate in a way that their supporters can see it, understand it, engage, share, follow, etc. But the algorithms and often even other people aren't necessarily going to see it. If we move to a platform like Gab, there is no effort to prevent the hate. And, you know, we have lists of tens of neo-Nazi pages that are just very openly out there and collections of messages posted by the founder of the platform that is supporting this sort of content. So it really depends where you are. What we've seen is a shift, particularly around the time of the storming of the Capitol. The platform's cracked down very heavily The mainstream platforms and we saw an even greater shift of people moving to these alternative platforms like Gab, Telegram, et cetera. So we're in a a bit of a, a state of flux at the moment where those communities have grown, but they grew, they grew and I think they may have hit a ceiling. So there is an effort to bring some of that sort of content back into mainstream platforms. There's an effort to coordinate in one place and then recruit and promote and spread messages in mainstream places. So there's a a back and forth that's still going on. In terms of hate speech, uh, Andre, I guess one thing, one uh, question
3: that often emerges in in this context is how do you distinguish between hate speech and what's normally considered free speech? Because I think the very common response is, well, as uh, you know, internet users, as citizens, uh, we should enjoy the right to engage in free speech. From a legal point of view, can you articulate what the distinction is between free speech and hate speech? And, and I guess, especially in the Australian context, explain maybe how that's a little different to, say, the US context or other
2: places in the world. Okay. So I, I think the, the last part of your, your question hit the nail on the head. Really, it's a question of, are you in America or not? Okay, because when people are talking about free speech, most of the time what they're really speaking about is the U.S. First Amendment. And the U.S. First Amendment, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, says that hate speech is actually a form of protected free speech. So in the U.S., it doesn't matter if it's hate speech or not. Even if it's hate speech, it's still protected. You can't stop, or the government at least, can't stop people saying it. Now, that restriction on the government doesn't stop a private company or individual preventing that speech in a space that it controls. So a technology platform can ban hate speech. Um, That's not against the First Amendment. It's their space. They can do what they like. That is an aspect of their own free speech. If we then come back to the Australian context, in Australia, we do not have a First Amendment. Okay, it's literally the First Amendment to the American Constitution. It does not apply here. We do have a very limited form of free speech, which is a constitutionally implied freedom of political communication. And that protects, it protects uh, speech, it prevents the government passing a law that would prevent the sort of speech that is necessary in order to have a free and fair election, for example. It ensures that people can be informed. Now, it's not a blanket ban. What it means is that the government, when it makes a law, the law needs to restrict speech to the minimum, well, to the minimum extent that will achieve a legitimate goal. Now, the Racial Discrimination Act says that racism, at least in Australia, is unlawful. And You know, that has been challenged on the basis of, well, racism should be like in the US, where it should be protected speech, and it should be protected as political speech. And in general, the answer is no. Okay, the Racial Discrimination Act applies, and it limits only speech, it limits it only enough in order to protect people, communities, etc., and doesn't overly interfere with free speech. So it still stands. So I look. I, I hope that answers it a bit. The um, the real point is that the US is an anomaly. In the rest of the world, free speech is anything which is not prohibited by law, and hate speech is prohibited by law.
1: You mentioned earlier that the platforms began to take things a little more seriously after the riots at the Capitol uh, at the beginning of twenty twenty one. We also saw platforms take a bit of a shift in uh, how they responded to hate speech online after the massacre in Christchurch. Uh, I was wondering, in your observations of how the platforms react to hate online, are are they too reactive? Is there a lack of proactive effort?
2: No, look, both of those are examples where the platforms significantly increased their efforts. You know, we we can also go back to the the, the march in the US, you know, the Unite the Right rally. That was another point where the platforms tightened things up after that, after the the death at that rally. So we've seen multiple points where suddenly the platforms tighten some aspect of their rules. The uh, insurrection and the response to that really is the most recent major tightening. Um, but what we've seen is the platforms are used, the platforms are used as a tool by people with racist, fascist, et cetera views. The platforms start by saying, well, we just provide a platform. We've got nothing to do with the content. We're not responsible for it. Then something happens and it crosses the line. And the public's response and the response of elected representatives and government is that's not good enough. So the platforms go back to the drawing board and they say, okay, we will do more. And what we've seen is Them trying at first to balance to say we will allow as many people as we can, but we will remove people that are actively promoting, you know, incitement to violence. Then we remove people that are part of a few designated groups, and then it was broadened even further, and you end up with anyone promoting QAnon style conspiracy theories being kicked off, and it it does get quite broad. The more people the platform throws off the more they damage their own business model, because that's reducing and shrinking their audience. But on the other hand, if they allow their platform to be used in that way, then advertisers don't want to be there. You don't want to have advertising for your company appearing next to a neo-Nazi group. So you know, we've seen the platforms, we've seen a shift in society, and we've seen the idea that platforms shouldn't be responsible. It's the users that are responsible. That was the old line. We've seen that evaporate. So I think platforms are doing more, um, but the amount that the platforms are doing really varies by platform.
3: Uh, Andre, one problem I've encountered on Facebook in discussing some of these uh, Nazi and other fascist groups is I'm unable to share certain material or make reference to particular groups or individuals without it being censored. And yet at the same time, I'm I'm actually trying to draw attention to these matters in order to, uh, not in order to promote them, but in order to encourage some form of... Opposition. How do you think the, you know, I am thinking of Facebook in particular. Perhaps this is applicable to other uh, online um, social media uh, companies. Is, is the is there further refinement, I guess, required to enable people to speak about such matters? And I guess more generally, how do you negotiate talking about anti-Semitic groups and so on and so forth uh, without at the same time promoting them and doing so in a way that's that's critical and informing the public? in a way, I guess, that is ultimately um, productive and, you know, makes hate speech less feasible?
2: Very good question. So the first thing is that the what you've experienced is, is quite common, and it's not just on the platforms. I was speaking to an anti-hate activist recently um, who's working with schools, and they are having trouble communicating with some schools because the email system is refusing to accept any emails with the word racism in them So any anti-racism training gets rejected because obviously the word racism is part of the word anti-racism So you know we, we have a problem here that we we need to have a little bit more nuance We need to have more people with technical skills working on these problems at all levels and the problem is, the money to pay for people with technical skills generally goes to pay them to do things that generate more revenue. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the focus. So, you know, we're struggling to, to get resources in the right place to work on solutions. From Facebook particularly, the policy is that if you are calling out racism, fascism, etc., theoretically, it is within policy and is allowed to be on the platform. The problem is where the decision is being made by the artificial intelligence. It may not be that smart, and it may be erring on the the side of caution of just getting rid of it. So, you know, there there is a question: Is it, you know, is it more important to overprotect and get rid of content, including potentially some positive education content, or should we be focusing on allowing activism through? but potentially then also allowing more of the hate to slip through. And that was really the the balance before the old argument was, well, we're a neutral platform. It's up to people to argue it out and have a battle of ideas. And the problem is we don't really want to have a battle of ideas on whether fascism is a good idea, um, You know, particularly not in social media where you can have groups that form their own views that – you know, you you have a, a small group of people, but drawing from the global population, you can get some really crazy, dangerous ideas there that can then lead to real world violence. So these are the problems that we you know we deal with. Um, this is what we saw, for example, on 8 Chan. Um, this is where Christchurch came from. So th- there is a real problem there. We need to address. Okay. So look, one of the the Online Hate Prevention Institute publishes a lot of hate speech. It's it's what we do, okay? We find the hate, we document it, we publish it. And when we publish it, we explain why it is a problem. We provide analysis, arguments, etc. around it. But we do publish it. Now, when we publish it, one of the things we do is we redact the names of the people and groups responsible. Um, part of that is to prevent a backlash against them, which may be disproportionate to what they did if you end up with a, a massive mob. But part of it is to prevent people going and joining and spreading the content. We had a whole lot of content. Uh, we were one of the first people to deal with Antipodean resistance. I actually found the posts about the launch of Antipodean resistance on Iron March before Antipodean resistance was really a thing. And, you know, we published and wrote about that. But when we did so, at least for the first probably year or two, um, we never actually named them. And when we publish their content, we always redacted their name, URL, logos, etc., and just refer to them as a fascist youth group. So, you know, it doesn't work so well when some of the mainstream media then go and not only name them, but sometimes give, you know, some of the extremists in the community a platform, but we do our part by trying not to name them. Again, you need to show the content in order to highlight what the problem is, but you need to do it in the right context. And we wouldn't, you know, even if we could get away with it to put a, something on Facebook and advertise it to people to show what the hate is that we remove, we don't do that, right? The hate is on our website and you don't get to it unless you know you're going to it. Um, you're forewarned that you're about to see this sort of content. So look, I think that's, that's part of it. You can't. Get the community energized and working to respond to the problem unless you let them know that there is a problem. That said, there is certain content that we do not share, or at least we do not share publicly. On top of everything which is publicly available on our website, we have a whole series of confidential briefings which go off to various parts of government, police, community groups when needed, etc. Those reports detail. Who is behind things? What's going on? They show content that may be so extreme that we wouldn't want to expose a member of the public to it. You know, there was there was one example which we had early on, which involved um, uh, there was an indigenous child who had died, and there was a trolling attack on the the parents, the family, etc., using images of the child which had been doctored in various ways. We shared that. For an inquiry that was being being done, we shared it immediately with the minister, with the police, um, shared what information we had on who may be behind it, but we didn't actually publish any content on that for a few years. I mean, at that time, the, the kid hadn't even been buried yet, so it's it's a judgment call on on what you share, how you share it, and when you share it. Uh, Andre, the Morrison government
1: has this week announced uh, they're going to accept recommendations of the ACMA review into digital platforms and how they respond to disinformation. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that and uh if you th- felt that was going in the right direction.
2: Look, I, I haven't had time to look at it in depth. I've I've got to say that we we do have a serious threat from mm-hmm. both disinformation and misinformation. It's coming across in, in numerous different places, causing different sorts of problems. But what we've said to government is they they really need to stop trying to go it alone. And we need to have proper partnerships between government, civil society, the community at large, and and even between bits of government. Often it's very bad. The, The government decides to give some agency a whole lot more power, and they work in isolation, and they miss half the problem. So we, we really need to see more coordination. We need to see more support for the community, for, you know, for, for NGOs like the Online Hate Prevention Institute, also for academics and scholars doing some of the research. And we need to see the people in government who are working on the problems reaching out and talking to people that are, you know, are tackling these same problems and government providing the funding to, to actually allow experts to do their work you know, we, we we can't just have government operating in a silo. And too often, that's what we've seen happen.
1: Uh, an emerging front in this battle against hate is uh, in the world of gaming. I was wondering, could you tell us what you've observed changing, what, what trends you've observed uh, in relation to hate and gaming and their intersection?
2: Yeah, so one of the things I should start with here is when we think of gaming, we sort of put in a little box off at the side, okay? It's a Social activity, it's entertainment, it's not real life. What we've seen, particularly with the announcement from Facebook when it has renamed itself as Meta and is now working on creating the Metaverse, we're seeing a significant shift. So what is the Metaverse? The Metaverse is using augmented reality, virtual reality, to change the way we live our lives to have our digital existence rather than having for example social media and email and things that we have now it will now be in a virtual environment which is somehow interfacing with the real world the technology behind that is not new okay there are new developments happening things are getting faster better etc but the core ideas are not new we can go back to a game like second life which has been around oh I forget when Second Life first started but it was it was certainly around in the the early 2000s an environment like that where people can have an avatar and move around a 3D world we know how that works that is very different to Facebook taking over such an environment taking its entire user base and saying now you'll be able to do your local marketplace and your shopping and your engaging with uh, NGOs with brands with government or within this environment that takes it from being a game to being an aspect of real life so one of the challenges we have is when social media came along there was a massive reset and all the work and the strategies we'd built up for dealing with racism in society sort of collapsed when we were then dealing with the social media environment. They just didn't work the same. They didn't apply. When we hit the metaverse, we could end up with the same thing happening again. So how do we prevent that? Well, we need to recognize that many of the technologies, many of the affordances that we see do come from gaming and do already exist. So what problems have we seen in the pure gaming sphere? Well, let's start with Christchurch. Okay, Christchurch, the attack was streamed using Facebook. What happened when we got to the Halley attack in Germany? Okay, it was streamed using a gaming service. So we've seen both social media and gaming being used to promote in real-time terrorist attacks. We can move across and look at, again, uh, some of these virtual environments where we have seen concentration camps, Nazi bunkers all sorts of virtual physical spaces set up promoting really harmful fascist ideology. And that environment is then used by actors within that space to try and indoctrinate people. We need to stop that happening. We've seen, again, environments where uh, glorification of Nazism, glorification of terrorism takes place. We need to stop that. I've mentioned Gab already with its many Nazi groups. I went and looked on one of the major gaming platforms. So this is not a, a platform where you play a game. It's a platform where you, you use to access games and where you can have league tables, profiles, etc. Just looking at the usernames, a quick search came up with a huge number of profiles where either the username or the text in the profile was deeply anti-Semitic. And I'm sure we could do the same test looking for homophobic content, you know, looking for misogyny. It will be there. And again, dealing with these gaming platforms, their view is, oh, well, we suspended the account, perhaps. Some of them are active. Some will be suspended. Even the suspended accounts are still there. They're still part of the environment that show up in search results. So we need to start... Cleaning up the gaming environment, but also learning from the problems that occur there and being ready to start applying them to the metaverse when that problem hits us.
3: In, in the gaming sphere and, and elsewhere in terms of online life, there's been an argument that one of the reasons that um, hate speech in its um, various forms has thrived is because of the affordance or the, the capacity of the internet to allow people to function relatively anonymously. And in conditions of anonymity, people are more likely to engage in what would otherwise be considered to be unacceptable or antisocial behaviour. At the same time, there are others who at, who argue that privacy is uh, a very important value and we should be able to preserve that online. What's your take on the relationship between, I guess, anonymity and the importance of privacy, um, especially given the debates that are taking place in, in Australian Parliament and many others about regulating online content and the ability of others to identify uh,
2: people who are acting online? Okay, so firstly, I I don't think the problem we're facing with is really about anonymity. It's about unaccountability. So one way you can have unaccountability um, where an actor can do what they like with no consequences is if they're anonymous and it's impossible to connect the consequences to them. Another way may be that you just have an actor who is so powerful that you can't apply consequences To them. We've also seen a a broader problem where we see various uh, accounts that promote hate, even on a platform like Facebook, which is fairly well regulated. The person may get banned for a time and they just come out of it laughing, saying, I'm back. And, you know, there's nothing the platform can do beyond just banning them again. And the person's probably operating 20 accounts and just jumping between them. So, one of the things we've advocated is that there needs to be a link between online behavior and the way platforms, you know, apply consequences to users and what governments do. So there needs to be a point where behavior that is so extreme on a, a game platform or a social media platform just needs to be handed over by the platform to the government saying, you need to deal with this, right? And that could be the case of live streaming a terrorist attack in Christchurch. That's not for Facebook to fix, okay? That's for Facebook to immediately tell the police and get the police to go and deal with the fact there is an active shooter. But lower down on the scale, we've got people that are serial pests. That are abusers, harassers of others. There's got to be a point where it goes from a suspension of your online account to a knock on the door from the police saying you've got to stop this, or you know, there's going to be some antisocial behaviour order or, or something like that. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think users should have a right to their privacy, but that doesn't mean that the platform doesn't have a way to reconnect them to an identity in order to share that with an you know an appropriate authority. So we do a lot of work where you know we do find accounts that we can match to real identities we don't publish that information we share that information in those confidential reports with the appropriate authorities so we need to have authorities that are doing the right thing that have the tools to respond but we also need to have platforms able to make the referral to them so you know I, again part of it is for the platforms part of it is for civil society groups you know we created a system for uh, dealing with for dealing with really terrorist attacks and other extreme events where we said, look, this is a system that could work between the public working with civil society organisations, civil society organisations flagging and prioritising things for police, and police then able to focus their resources, particularly when there is an active event happening, so that they only deal with the things that are are likely to exacerbate the situation or cause further flare-ups. If we can all work together, we can keep the public safe much more easily and much more effectively. If everyone's pulling in different directions, it becomes much, much harder. And ultimately, it's the public that suffers.
3: Andre, what do you make of recent and um, proposed changes to Australian federal and state laws that penalise the public display of symbols like the Nazi swastika?
2: There's a couple of points in that. The first one is there has been a bit of a push not to refer to it as a swastika. And in my view, that's partly a mistake. Um, I think we do need to be very clear in acknowledging that the swastika symbol did, you know, has a long history. It has a meaning outside of the one the Nazis gave to it. But at the same time, if we talk about the Nazi swastika, as you just did, we all know what we're talking about. And I think we do need to be clear on our language and trying to hide that doesn't, doesn't help. So that's the, the first point. The second point is it's not just that one symbol. There is a whole range of symbols and there are new symbols that get invented all the time. So the more effective we are at actually banning things, the more we will see alternatives, coded speech, etc., pop up. So we need to have a system that bans a list of symbols which can be readily amended and have things added to it, which is sensitive to context. I remember when the social media companies or the tech companies started banning various slur words, um, there was an effort by the far right to start referring to different ethnicities using the names of different tech companies. And and the logic was, well, Google will have to ban the word Google, which it's not going to do. So, you know, there are, there are challenges um, ultimately we need to make sure that we are capturing the right things. We are banning the right things. We're applying context to them and we're able to move rapidly and adapt to what we see Um, because particularly online, it moves so quickly. Andre, just
1: finally, we've seen a lot of changes on the platforms over the past 10 years that the Institute has been operating. Uh, has it all been for the better, or are there er- there are still areas that are lagging too far behind? In your opinion,
2: again, it really depends on which platform we're talking about. So, um, Facebook, for example, I think has has got a lot better. Um, we serve with a number of other organisations on a con- sort of consultancy group that meets with them on a regular basis. I mentioned before that we, you know, when we found uh, a-, a whole bunch of Holocaust denial, we're able to work with the Facebook office in Australia, get it rapidly removed. There's been various cases of people whose accounts have been wrongly banned. Again, we have able to act as an intermediary to get that corrected. So, you know, Facebook, I think there is, there is work to be done, but it is an awful lot better than it used to be. If we look, for example, to a company like Twitter, in Australia globally, Twitter is just not very present. Um, they're not in the forums. They're not in the discussion. Now, you know, I've got some contacts with Twitter in the US and have been able to work with them on some issues, but it is, a lot harder and there is a, a lot less collaboration to make their platform safer than we see from some of the other platforms and then we've got the platforms that just don't care whose entire premise is they're happy being a place for extremists and haters to share their stuff and some of those platforms weren't there a few years ago so we're seeing an, an exodus to these alternative platforms or what's being referred to as min- minimally moderated platforms and that's a whole new challenge what you do with a platform that just says we don't care, and that's their response. You go and say, "Well, here is a whole bunch of um, Holocaust denial, promotion of you know promotion of hate against different communities. This is on your platform. What are you going to do about it?" And their response is, "We don't care, and we're not in your legal jurisdiction. So what are you going to do about it? We need to have a, a global response to some of these issues. And you know, in general, we don't want to put filters on the internet to stop you know to stop Australians being able to access parts of the internet. That's generally not a good idea. But do we need a solution like that for certain sites that are dangerous um, and who we have no other way to stop? Um, so these are these are open challenges.
1: Well, Andre, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow the Institute online, you're at Online Hate on Twitter and Facebook. And people can, of course, find the website at ohpi.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, Andy, we'll be back next week. Uh, see you then.
3: See you then.
0: And ain't the plane Cause he just signed out Bad Losers On Yahoo Chess 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 we bueno.
2: 3CR's Trans Day of Audibility is airing seven hours of trans and gender-diverse radio in the lead-up to the 2022 Trans Day of Visibility. Tune in on Sunday, the 27th of March between 12 noon and 7pm to hear trans and gender-diverse voices bring the noise to the Western gender binary. We'll be bringing you shows covering art, culture, politics and everyday transgender lives towards a transgender day of audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au slash TransDave Audibility twenty twenty two.